A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Murphy Shigematsu. He is a psychologist and has training in clinical and community psychology, yoga, meditation, and Chinese medicine. He holds a doctorate from Harvard University. He's been a teacher and counselor in Japan and the United States, working with all ages from daycare to medical school. He's also a Fulbright scholar. His current research is in the assessment of mindfulness in promoting personal well-being, leadership, and social transformation. I was privileged to find Stephen's book in the basement of the Strand Bookstore in New York City. In it, he uses his personal experience to expand concepts that help us to transform ourselves, ultimately help us transform society using compassion. Stephen talks with me about the power of listening and how to be a more effective listener, what it really means. He also talks about actually seeing others and being seen, why it matters, how we can do it. Stephen talks a lot about this duality, this tension between serving our ego, which of course we all have, while remaining humble. So how do we walk that line between ego and humility? How do we share the things we know, the gifts we have with others in ways that makes a difference while not letting it go to our head, not just being arrogant jerks? With that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Stephen Murphy Shigematsu. Stephen, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I know when I reached out to you that um, we didn't know each other. But I found right. your book, From Mindfulness to Heartfulness, in the basement of the Strand Bookstore in New York City uh, when I was <laughs> there last year. And uh, it, just, it just called to me, and, and I've been reading it, and I really love this book. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad you found it. <laughs> me too. Me too. You're, you're... One thing I want to share, I thought this was interesting. Um, in the book, I did find it, it was gently used. And so someone had owned it before me. They had taken great care of it. There were no marks or anything. I thought it was interesting that inside the book is actually a prescription for someone. It has their name. Of course, I won't read that, but it's, it's referring them for ECT for TRD. And I, it just reminded me, you know, if that's electro, electroconvulsive therapy for treatment-resistant depression, that yeah. uh, suffering is real, right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So this, I think you're reaching uh, a yeah. lot of people with this. Yeah. I I feel that a lot. You know, I live a normal life. For, I, I work at a college and I see students going through a normal, what appears to be a normal day. And yet, if the space is created for them to really be present and vulnerable and open, then 
you just see the suffering that everybody is experiencing, but just doing their best to get through the day. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of what that saying, um, everyone, everyone you interact with is fighting a hard battle you know nothing about yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you the question that I like to ask all my guests at the outset. What's life about? <laughs> wow. I was hoping for an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> What's difficult about that? <laughs> well, you know, in some ways it's perhaps the easiest question, right? You wake up every morning and ask yourself, well, okay, I realize I'm awake. Yes. I realize I'm alive. Now what do I do? Exactly. What's what's this going to be all about uh, that I get up, uh, that I exist at all? And um, I have I have a, always a, a moment of doubt every morning when I wake up and, and think, well, what is this all about? And um, I don't know if I re- achieve clarity. I think clarity takes a while, and I have some rituals I go through to. I make a chai every morning with grating fresh ginger and some seeds, cardamom and black pepper and cinnamon sticks. And so I have a ritual and then I feel like my, I, my head is clearing somewhat. And then I start to, uh, often I read different things or I say different things. So I have this like by my, uh, my, my desk, it's from the Dalai Lama. And it's a, it's a reminder that simply you're alive and that you're, um, your life is precious, you know, and that you mm. can uh, do what you can today, right? What can you do to use your energies to live the best you can with some kindness and compassion? And uh, and it may not be anything dramatic, and it may be something very mundane. What you're called to do is, there was a dog here, and, you know, feed the dog, take let the dog take care of its biological needs, and... Um, I live with a partner and I to have see what her needs are and what I might be able to do to to meet those and then um I have I believe in the I have a, a gift of writing and so I mm-hmm. often feel like okay what can you do with well maybe a more direct answer would be I feel like I've been told by so many wise people of different uh kinds that it's to do what the best you can with what you've got. Mm. So in a sense to, to realize, you know, who you are, what you've been given, what might be your unique purpose and, and the, the, for your existence, and then to do what you can to fulfill that. Um, yeah. Well, that, that introduces a lot of questions about how we can know and, you know, yeah. how we do it once we, we have an inkling and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and some of that I, I definitely want to ask about. But one thing that um, that I want to ask you is um, I want to ask a few questions about what your life was like growing up and in particular your um, – what I would call your cultural heritage. Um, and I'm specifically interested to start with your grandmother who is a prominent figure in your book. And you talk about the fact that she lived to be 111 Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's some good genes right there and probably some <laughs> some good fortune and taking care of herself. Um, will yeah. you share with me a little bit about about your grandmother, what she was like, what you learned from her? 
Anything that feels appropriate? To me, just the, her age in itself is very unusual. I was talking with somebody yesterday, and he said, and I never have, you know, nobody ever lives to be 110. And I said, well, actually, <laughs> I do know somebody and, uh, who lived to be that long. And there was something that was um, in, in uh, Japanese, there's the word seimeiryoku. So it's this sense of life energy that she just had this tremendous uh, power of, just being alive, and that emanated from her. And I think I mentioned how when I was in my late 20s and feeling very lost in terms of what the point or purpose of my life was, I, I just had this very clear message. Maybe it's the time in my life I have felt the most clear, clearly a, a message that I might call a spiritual, that something was very powerfully and very clear saying you should return home. And Home to me meant Japan, but it also meant my grandmother. And, uh, and there was something that was, I think, life-sustaining uh, about that. It was like, this is how you will renew yourself if you can get with this person who is somehow connected to you in some kind of a soul or spirit manner, which I didn't really couldn't define. But there was some something there that was calling me to be with this person who then welcomed me with open arms. And um, I felt like I was gradually um, absorbing or gaining some of this, uh, this life energy that was in some ways I had was very disconnected from my own energy and my own um, spirit, life spirit. And that, that was uh, just being with her enabled me to get, some of that back and it was like uh, um, so the book is really a, an attempt to reflect on that process and to see how what what was happening at that time in my life and how was this one person so influential uh, in terms of teaching me things that seemed like important life lessons that um, and that have st stayed with me and now I feel like that's something I can pass on now to others. Yeah. Well, and I think you've done such a wonderful job of sharing universal concepts in a very personal way and distilling, I mean, these chapters here about beginner's mind, vulnerability, authenticity, connectedness, listening, acceptance, gratitude, and service. Yeah. Right. And, and throughout um, sharing some of these these stories and experiences. And, and one of them that I was really touched by was the one where you talk about when your grandmother um, came from Japan to the United States for a while to see if it made sense mm. to care for yeah. her here. And yeah. I was really touched by your thoughtfulness and your family and supporting her that way. At, but ultimately her decision to return to Japan. Yeah. Will you talk? And, and what I was struck by, by the way, was this idea of how ultimately, you know, we are individuals and we're part of something larger. Yeah. And it seemed like your grandmother had a real sensitivity to that and not wanting to burden your family. And yeah. will you talk a little bit about what that was like and about her decision ultimately to, to return to Japan? Yeah, that um, I'm finding that that experience is, uh, had a very deep impact on, on me in terms of understanding what this whole when we think about the self and we think about happiness and we think about, you know, what is it that would make uh, our lives good, that 
it's um, there's a lot cultural, you know, clearly in that story. And I think it's uh, even if we separate it as this is Japanese and this is American, that that's really false in the sense that we all, I think, are facing some kind of a that dilemma of how what is um, how much do we base our sense of self and and our sense of happiness on something that is either individualistic or or collective and um, so that story uh, um, about how we tried to find out what is the source of happiness for my grandmother um, really made things a lot clearer to me about how we um, what you just described as that that we are both individuals and we are also connected uh, yeah. to others and that we can't so I think some of us are clearer about their that we can't separate the two, uh, and that if we we try to, it's probably not going to lead us to great fulfillment. Um, but connecting them is very complex too, yeah. and may lead us away from a lot of what our popular culture, or even the popular you know Silicon Valley culture, or the whole cultures of achievement and accomplishment and power, and um, we get certain messages in those that kind of a culture that tells us that uh, I think deludes us that our, our happiness is really based on something individualistic, something very much about me. And um, what my grandmother's story taught me was that it's that, that I or that me is, uh, or even the, the you is all something that is deeply connected to others. And so for my grandmother to ask her, what would, what do you want? What's going to make you happy? Uh, we had a whole sense that, she could answer that by saying, yes, me, this is what I really want as an individual. And she was kept telling us, it's not possible for me to answer like that. Mm-hmm. But what makes me happy will be what makes everybody happy. If everybody yeah. can be happy, I'll be happy. Even yeah. if it looks like I'm sacrificing my happiness, but that's not really true. And you mentioned in the book... Um I don't remember who it was you referenced, but you talked about just this simple but beautiful analysis of the Spanish word nosotros, right? Being, uh, that's uh, Gloria Anzaldua, yeah. Yeah, and how neat that is about, like, we, but breaking that yeah. down a little differently and showing, you know, the, the power of language and looking at and thinking about, you know, things that we maybe don't look at differently and recognizing, acknowledging our individuality uh, along with the collective that we're ultimately a part of. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful word. I thought to to and to to see that they are one, right? And that we're yeah. always separating the us and them, and this and that how much there's suffering in that separation, and yet to right. to see them as actually one was uh, powerful in that word. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really beautiful. Well, one thing, if you're willing, um, that I would love to do with you, and and then invite our listeners. At this moment to do, some of whom will probably be driving, <laughs> others who uh-huh. may be fo- folding laundry or you know, shoveling snow or who knows what they're doing. But I've never had the privilege of sitting in your classroom and being a part of the heartful spaces that you create. Mm. But um, I, was, I was hoping that you and I could, or that you more appropriately would be willing to do something right now that would help provide us the experience of heartfulness if there's any kind of a short meditation or visualization or some other kind of process that Mm. we could actually do to create more than just a mind conversation, but 
invite an experience and a heart, more of a heart centered uh, experience. Oh, how's that for putting you on the spot? (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I've uh, found to be really useful is that I, sometimes I do it in a more dramatic way. Like I wear a kimono and I come into the room and I speak in Japanese only, even though that's not expected. Or in Japan, I sometimes speak in Spanish a little bit. And um, so there's, there are more dramatic forms of it, but I feel like something that I've started to do back when I was working with the U S Marines and the U S Navy in a more conservative environment in which I would not feel comfortable to do anything too strange. (laughs) Uh, I would simply uh, begin every presentation by saying, you know, uh, this is who I am and this is why I'm here. Uh, And that seemed to create a whole different sense about um, the, the feeling in the space and what, what was going to happen? What was happening already? And what and did what you say? Happen? This, what did, I think what it was. <laughs> who, well, I think this it, is who I am, and this is why I'm here. What are those? What are the, What do you say? I think it was different every time, and there was no uh, prepared. Well, I tried to prepare something, but in the moment, I would often say something different. Hmm. Um, so, if I was to do that right now, I don't have anything prepared. I would say I'm. Uh, I'm simply a person who's trying to uh, do my best with what I've got. Um, I'm here. Um, I'm here because I believe that there is some purpose to my life, and that um, if there's somebody like Brian gives me the opportunity, then I want to say yes. If somebody gives the opportunity to say. Could you share what you are learning in your life uh, with others? Then I want to say yes to that, and that I'm I'm here with both a sense of um, ego, you know, that I have something to say, and also a sense of humility that I have nothing new to say to, to anybody really that's not been said already. Um, but that I I understand that often things need to be repeated. We need to every day remind ourselves why we're here and what we can do. And um, so I'm here with that in that spirit of um, kind of some disbelief, really. What I have lived is important to somebody else. That's kind of uh, unbelievable, but it's also, it makes me feel um, that I exist too, because I feel like I'm being recognized. Somebody sees me, I see you and, uh, the other thing that I often do in, in the class is that we do a simple exercise that we acknowledge each other's existence. And mm-hmm. it comes from, um, I started to do it after I learned about a, a Zulu word, saubona, um, which was uh, taught to me as meaning that um, I see you. And it's used um, as a greeting by some people in, in South Africa. Um, but that the deeper meaning is that uh, I am not this solitary individual, but that I am with my ancestors. Uh, I am with, um, I am be- go beyond this individual body of existence. And the same for you. When I, I see you, I see more than just your individual uh, existence in that body, but I see you as part of something, other people, uh, your ancestors, your people, and your communities. And so I ask people to get up and we walk around the room and we simply 
say either salbona if you're comfortable with that, or if you have another word like namaste with a very similar type of meaning of simply that I, the divine in me, sees the divine in you. We, we recognize our existence, we bring each other into existence simply by seeing. Um, so we walk around the room and uh, sometimes people say in, uh, or sometimes they use the word uh, hineni, I believe is the word, uh, a Hebrew word meaning uh, I am here. And so this, mm. acknowledge, simply acknowledging each other and walking in the room, and so I would look at Brian and say, I, I see you. And then you would say, I am here. Mm. And then I would, yeah. you would do the, the same with me. I see you. And I would say, yeah. I, I am here. And the, what happens then is truly amazing. You know, it's so simple. And then I ask people, what are you feeling? And they say, wow, it's, uh, I realized how much I want to be seen. You know, that I feel so good just to be seen. I'm recognized. I, I, am, I, am, I know I exist. And um, one person even used the expression, there are no enemies. Wow. I realized there are no enemies. When I can look into somebody else's eyes, even for a moment, and say, I see you, and they say, I am here, then that whole sense of what we were just talking about, us and them, disappears behind that simple act of, of seeing and being seen. That's amazing. It's, it's really beautiful. And... I was touched when I read that, um, and you you share a little bit of that on page one hundred one of your book, and and I love that that response to Salbona, with a res, yeah the response meaning I am here. So this 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 awesome exchange of meaning that by the act of seeing one another we come into existence. Yeah, right? it's all, is yeah. kind of a metaphysical thought, but experientially there's something very profound. Yeah, and really really beautiful. Yeah, now that that's wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that. And then what comes in is the sense of responsibility, right? If I see you and you see me and we acknowledge that we are both here, then uh, we also acknowledge our own, our, the suffering that exists here. Yeah. I, you know, I recognize that uh, I suffer and I see you and you, you suffer. And then we, we have a way of coming together then and a reason to be together and that we can simply by that sharing something, healing can occur. Yeah. Do you mind if I borrow that for a, a workshop I do? You Sometime can. I want to try it. <laughs> I know you didn't yours. create it or anything, but it's, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it's yours. That's great. And, and what you said before yeah. about, about sharing something and having both ego and humility, I thought was, first of all, very yeah. honest, right? Yeah. And I certainly uh, recognize some of that in myself. And I, it made me think about something I think was Andre Gide said, everything has been said before. But since no one was listening, it must be said again. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's great. Well, the, the other thing that that yeah. – God, there's two things that this, this conversation brings up for me. One of them is I really love – this is one of the things I love is I studied Japanese for five years and I was a, mm. uh, a student in, in an exchange for one academic year and, and lived with a host family. And I, I felt – I just love – first of all, I love in Japanese – Whereas, you know, in some of the Latin or romantic languages, there's the distinction between masculine and feminine, where in mm. Japanese, I love that there's the sensitivity to animate or inanimate. Mm. Like if this is alive, you know, you use a different uh, a different verb to exist for something that's not alive, a book or – Oh, something. I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the sensitivity that's, that's implied yeah. in that. And, and I also love the um, – I love that there's these kind of call and responses 
about mm. like um, you know Tadaima and Okai. Like I'm here just now. <laughs> you know, welcome yeah. home, right? Or I'm yeah. leaving. Be careful, right? Kiyotsukete, yeah. right? And and our family um, sometimes we bless our food. We have we have six kids, and we endeavor oh. to eat together every every night at six p.m. We're at the table. Wow. And, and and so we don't always bless the food, but one thing we're we're sure to do is we always do offer the uh, itadakimasu. You know, oh, really? Yeah, to acknowledge, nice. yeah, the gratitude for all that all that is, and at the same time, how these things can become kind of formalities, right? Where we lose the yeah. deeper connection or the deeper meaning they might possess. Um, but you talk about that a little bit, yeah. and I think that might point to the essence of what heartfulness is. But will mm-hmm. you share with me? Why, why did the world need a book on heartfulness? Mm. And why did you write this book from mindfulness to heartfulness? What does it mean and why did you write it? Yeah. Um, well, you know, personally, I'm, I'm very deeply immersed in a, in a mind world. I, I, I went through a lot of college, you know, 10 years. Um, and then even there, I was immersed in the world of the mind in terms of focusing on clinical psychology. So right. and, my and, work and was Stephen, also... I, I apologize to yeah. jump in, but I just want to call out for our listeners that that's a very humble oh. statement, but talking about earning a PhD at Harvard. <laughs> yes. I did, yeah. Right, yes. and now teaching at Stanford. Yeah. Right, and having also taught at the is it University of Tokyo? Yes. So some pretty yeah. prestigious institutions that you've both learned and taught at... I just ended I the sentence with a yeah. preposition, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's uh, pretty pretty remarkable. And you're you're yeah. humble in what you're saying, but but as you're mentioning, you live in a mind world. So I interrupted. Please, continue. yeah. Um, and um, I, I guess I am. You know, I really am not too impressed by myself, though. <laughs> and I think part of the reason is my uh, my father never went to college, and I always, um, you know, from childhood i respected my father's knowledge and wisdom and that was uh, my grandmother didn't go to college and um so i didn't grow up with this um i grew up with a respect but also some uh cynicism about what these places what you'd learn at these places of the, the great elite institutions and now having been part of them for over 30 years i also have a very realistic sense of where wisdom is and where wisdom is not. And uh, so very it, there well is said. very, very diplomatically <laughs> phrased. <laughs> so it's, yeah, because I am part of them. So I have to be careful about, yeah. you know, not uh, disrespecting them as well. But, sure. um, but I was in this, I've been in this area of the mind for quite a long time and uh, being part of universities and, uh, and then being part of the education system uh, in which I, had studied though from how do you I've worked with kids as young as 18 months old so I was an early childhood educator and I've looked at how you know how early do you can you go be, to influence people's development and so I've looked at the whole life range and um I really have seen education over the over the long course and and have felt as in universities how much we are in a uh, focusing on the mind, meaning cognitive, rational, logical, uh, analytical discur- dis- discourse uh, and debate or argumentation, um, and a sense that of, of emptiness that I was finding in, particularly in college classrooms, 
about what we saw as the highest forms of knowledge and wisdom and how you would uh, transmit those that knowledge from one generation to, to another generation. And, uh, and then, of course, reflecting on my own experience as a board student, um, no matter where I was, uh, until I got to Harvard, actually, where I met some really amazing teachers. But the, my own sense of board, uh, boredom as a student, and, um, and then it was also stimulated somewhat by a crisis that I encountered at Stanford, which was when uh, I could see students really going through incredible mental health issues, uh, and that uh, it was jarring only in the sense that um, you know, we, the, our, our social image about what success is me, gives us this strange impression that if you achieve a certain success, then your life is good and life is happy and life. What were some of the things that you saw when you got there that concerned you? Uh, that students were deeply unhappy and that students were feeling very um, lost uh, yeah. and not a feeling, a, a sense of purpose. And often they had gotten to that place in their life and that level of achievement um, by focusing on uh, solely on achievement and the single-minded pursuit of their individual achievement. Uh, and as freshmen, they start to see some cracks and cracks appear in that uh, vision of life. And by the time they're a senior, there's a lot of cracks and some students get them more quickly than others. But there's a deep sense of, of that. Is this, is this all what it's all about? You know, is this all there is? Yeah. And is, and, uh, so I felt a need to provide something more than that in the, in a way that um, would be available to a lot of students. I did, and I had previously worked clinically, which is a lot of working one-to-one with people in an intense manner. Uh, and I wanted to use that, those skills or that way of um, teaching uh, in a, a, a setting that would be, uh, people could move quicker and more people could move together, and I felt that that could be done in a healing circle. So if we could get people together in small groups and to simply connect connect with um, ourselves better, more, be more open, authentic, and vulnerable, that that would create the connection with others and that that would help people to to heal faster, uh, more quickly than if I was with one individual working with them and then they had to, okay, now how do you go out and apply this in the world? We have the the circumstances right there in the classroom. And so that was, it was a general sense of moving from the mind, all of our focus on, on our thoughts and our cognitive processes to more of something that it was deeper and more heartfelt. And that's the, 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 uh, a quick explanation of what the, the title means and why I was moving in that direction. And, you know, certainly that, feeling that that was what is needed in in the world that I could see. Yeah. No, in, in the last chapter of your book where you write, I sense that my responsibility to my students is to encourage them to live a balanced life. Right? Uh, yeah. And I love that as an alternative yeah. to what, what is taught in our business schools around the world, but especially in the United States about maximize shareholder value at all costs, right? <laughs> and and the really, I think if we're, really honest about it, the destructive nature of unmitigated capitalism to environments, yeah. to people, you know, this kind of thing. And, and so I'm really glad to know that you're, you're making this endeavor to help students live a, a balanced and meaningful life of responsibility 
one thing that I'd like to explore with you here is you talk a little bit about the concept of balance and how it's different in a Western uh, sense from a Japanese approach yeah. to balance. Will you will you talk a little bit about how you see the difference in the way those two – I know that's grouping a broad culture, but yeah. in, in the distinctions and then what that means for how we might approach um, achieving balance? Yeah. Um, I know I've written about that. I've written about it for quite a few years and I I feel like I'm still – finding clarity every day and what does that really mean and the um because the whole idea of maintaining uh two different ways of seeing things or of acting um at the same time is something that is seems so uh contradictory to our sense about uh what how you must decide it's either this or it's that Right. Uh, and that seems uh, – I feel it much stronger in – certainly in the United States than when I live in Japan. But it's um, – I think it's it's still a very difficult concept to gain every day when we are called to make decisions about things and to, yeah. to stay where we stand on things. And um, But it's – so it's something I keep bringing, bringing up over and over in, in my teaching because it's something that we seem to, to need to figure out almost – on a constant basis of what uh, so the other day in class I was t- talking about how do you uh, this concept of arugamama so arugamama meaning this sense of acceptance of this is the way I am this is yeah. who I am this is the way I am if I can accept it then that could be the the source of liberation to mm. being more than what I am so that sense of paradox of uh, whereas in, often in the Western uh, psychotherapy context, we're taught the opposite. Don't you know? How do you want to change yourself? Yeah. Now, let's look at how and what's preventing that change. Let's analyze it. Let's figure out a solution to how you're going to change yourself. And um, you know, in Japanese therapy, an indigenous therapy that goes back to the time of Freud and Jung, it was uh, an acceptance therapy. It was how can you accept. How can you have this feeling of arugamama that you are, this is who you are, and that's, that's okay? And that can you hold, so in the sense of balance, can you hold that feeling and at the same time feel that you want to be more or that you can be more or that you will try to be more or that you will, uh, in a more pure sense, that you will simply, the energy will naturally be released yeah. for that, that positive movement. That's such an interesting um, paradox about learning to accept ourselves or perhaps even love ourselves completely yeah. exactly as we are right now with no conditions, yet yeah. also recognizing that more is possible. We can become more. We can give more. You know, we can, we can do more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I only can teach that because I have experienced it, and, and then I see students – experience it and tell me like wow it's it's amazing it's so strange because i that if i tell myself to love myself to feel compassionate to be kind to myself this is who i am then i feel somehow liberated to be different and to do more than that so like in the first class i i tell the students you know you don't have to talk this whole course for 10 weeks and you will not be negatively evaluated um 
and they write that in their journals that, wow, when you said that, I couldn't, I was just so relieved because I've spent so much of my energy into saying, thinking, not listening to other people, but simply formulating what I'm going to say because I know that's what the teacher wants. The teacher wants mm-hmm. to hear what my opinion is, and it doesn't have to be based on what anybody else has said. I don't, don't need to listen, but I just need to be ready to talk. So being told I don't have to talk, I just felt so relieved. And then one wrote, and then I talked more than I have talked in all four years at Stanford. <laughs> wow. Well, you gave them, you gave them, there's something really liberating about being accepted as we are, right? And for what we want and don't want and, and all that. So I think that's only something, um, someone whose mother, because you write about this also in the book, that your mother never said she loved you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Not yeah. because she didn't love you, but... Will you talk a little bit about that, about not needing to say things, and maybe about your mother not needing to say even, I love you? Yeah, that's um, – I, I think it was especially uh, noticeable because of the cultural context, which is uh, then in the United States and then with a, a very verbal father who was still uh, – had broken out some from his very uh, – he was only a second-generation Irish um, so there was not a lot of expression, but he was himself was very expressive. And so to, to see that, uh, the difference between the way my mother rarely said anything and the way my father was so expressive, and then to see friends uh, and their mothers you know, telling their kids, I love you, as, at the end of a conversation. And uh, it was, um, I think at times it was confusing, but it was something that I learned really you know, as I grew up as I learned, uh, especially as I lived in Japan more, to see that this was a very powerful way that um, a belief that things really could not be expressed in words, so that uh, when I read later the um, the famous uh, haiku poet, um, Basho, right? Uh, Basho, is that the name? Yes. Basho. Matsu, Matsuo Basho. Matsuo Basho, yeah. Um, of a statement he apparently made was, what's the point of saying everything with words? And I thought that was beautiful because it shows both, you know, this sense of futility that you can never find the word that could really express completely. And yet you never stop trying, right? You you keep, you keep, uh, that's all we, and it's like, that's what life is like in the sense, right? You can never find complete completeness but you keep going anyway hurry yeah that, that makes me think of the, something i've heard attributed to gandhi my life is my message yeah right like what a what a beautiful per- perspective well speaking of, yeah. of not needing to talk and of listening i know this is something that you teach your students and you mentioned mm-hmm. a mentor that you had at harvard kyo morimoto who yeah. talked, he taught you a lot about listening. Will you tell me a little bit about your mentor and what you learned from him and specifically um, as it relates to listening? Yeah. Um, yeah, Kiyo Morimoto was a Nisei. His parents came from Wakayama, Japan, and he was a potato farmer in uh, Pocatello, Idaho. And then the war broke out and he decided that um, his response would be to join the military and to prove the that he was a real American and the other Japanese uh, people here in, in the United States were real Americans and he was willing to sacrifice for that. And uh, 
It's a pretty magnanimous expression, I think. I think so. And it's, it refers back to, you know, you said earlier, I encourage my students to live a balanced life. And in reality, I, I question whether that's really enough. And I, the other day in class, I was saying, you know, uh, maybe balance is not all you're looking for. Maybe you're really, you're, you're, if you really discover your purpose, if you really discover what you, a belief that you have a mission, that that's what you're here for, then that could lead you into more danger than the simple, uh, comfort of a suburban life around, you know, that uh, where everything seems balanced and you've got everything under control. And, um, and that's the danger, I believe, of really being mindful and heartful and, and being focused and hearing a calling that that calling could be one of danger, not one that you choose. Yeah, it's uh, certainly part of the hero's journey, right? The call to adventure. That's the hero's, yeah. And you're going to say yes, sir, or no. <laughs> yeah, or, or stay small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where were we? So we were talking about um, we were talking about a potato farmer who decided to. Join oh, the potato the farmer, right? Okay. <laughs> so he decides he's willing to risk his life to do this, and um, but he, he survives the war. He's traumatized, but he then be, gets the GI Bill and goes to Harvard, becomes uh, the head of the counseling center there. And so by the time I got there, he was uh, teaching counseling, and it was what impressed me was the way he would tell students over and over again, uh, just repeat, you're not listening. And it was you know, very frustrating to many of us because we, first of all, you, when you get to that level of thinking you're going to be a PhD level, a Harvard psychologist, that you assume that's all about an analyzing, diagnosing, and then prescribing that, and treating, and that it's all about some kind of knowledge that you're going to be gaining that is not really in the heart. And he kept repeating uh, when you do that, you're not listening. You're, you've got to start there. And if you're not even starting there, then the, the patients and clients will recognize that and they won't, you won't connect to them. Uh, and so you've got to at least begin there. And so a lot of the students dropped out because they, you know, they realized how hard it was to, to listen and what they really, they really didn't want to listen. They wanted to simply you know, analyze or to tell other people what to do. And, um, so it was it impressed me, and I felt there was something very deep uh, in the connection with Japanese culture as well that was enabling him to stay with that position of uh, providing the, the simply the presence for us mm-hmm. uh, and the a holding place for people to be, um, and that that was what he at least we had to at least provide that uh, for anybody to feel that that was a healing space. I think that's such an amazing perspective, um, especially as one who, and maybe this is very, very common, but find my attention, wanting to divide my attention frequently, wanting to brush my teeth while looking at my messages, right? Wanting to drive while talking on the phone, Um, not wanting to sit and eat. And certainly when I'm with another person, not wanting to be fully present many times with whatever it is they're saying or what the experience is. And as you write in your book that Keo believed that the most important thing we could do was to be fully, as fully present as possible in each moment with the client. He taught that without being seen where we are, mm. humans find it hard to move. Yeah. Right. That, there's just something amazing. And then you talk a little bit in here about the character, the Chinese uh, or Japanese character for, I guess this is the Japanese kanji for kiku. To listen. Oh yeah, yeah. 
right? Will you talk a little bit about some of the elements that are present in this character or this word in Japanese? I thought that was pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, the character is,、um, I think it reveals a lot. Um, and that's something I've, I've enjoyed is to look at the characters and the, their,、um, what they could have meant to the person who constructed them. And that one,、uh, so the one for,、uh, it's often distinguishing between hearing and listening. The hearing one simply has a、uh, ear in it. And so you get a sense that if you can actually mechanically hear something, then you're, that's one particular way of being with somebody else. But the more complicated character has not only the ear,、uh, but it also has a, a mark for 10, which indicates like maximal、uh, attention. And then the, an eye, which indicates that you、uh, can use all your senses to really listen,、uh, picking up on nonverbal things and all kinds of nuances in voices. And,、um, And then there is also、uh, the number one, which indicates a kind of focus,、uh, concentration.、Um, and、uh, oh, yeah, and then there's a heart. So the heart indicates the, the sense of heart to heart communication and that the sense of all that can go beyond words in terms of how we can simply. Portray our true human emotion, which goes back to your question about my mother, and that she would never say, I love you, and she would instead、uh, do things like give me the, when I finished my piece of meat, I would take, he would, she would take it from her plate, what was left, and put it on my plate. And so there was, there was a,、um, you know, clearly a sense of heart to heart. Communication、yeah. that didn't need something didn't need to be said. And,、yeah. on the, and some of the older forms on the, <clears throat> the left side, there's also the character for king, which indicates that it's、uh, the king, the leader. Leadership really involves listening because you never know completely everything that's out there to know. But if you're a good listener, people will come to you and tell you, and you will have all this, sort, this knowledge then if you are the, a good listener. Yeah, I, I thought that was so amazing. And I love also that you point out that of all the elements、mm. present in this about the ear, the ten, the eye, the heart, you know, this, but there's no mouth. <laughs> there's、uh, no、yeah. mouth present in, in Kiku. Yeah. yeah.、So. Kiku. No,、um, that's great. So, how can we become better listeners? We know it's important to leadership, it's important, especially if we're in some of the healing disciplines, you know, to really see and hear. Our clients、mm-hmm. to help them move from wherever they are to what's possible for them.、Um, but as a practical matter, I mean, especially, right, when Kyo's saying over and over to you, you're not listening. You're not. You're not listening, right? And you're、yeah. like, yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. But what, what can we do? What, what can people listening, what can I do to be a more effective listener?、Uh, so, you know, I teach what's called mindfulness. <clears throat> or heartfulness.、Um, but I'm told that I teach it in a different way than a lot of other people do, even at Stanford. And that、uh, what students say is that it, it's a way that、um, rather than focus simply on meditation、um, or the kind of rituals, that it's, I, I view it simply as the, the foundation of a way of being. And that that way of being is a way that if we can be. In that way, together, then we create the place 
that would lead to something like good listening. So simply being there, uh, finding yourself present, being there with a beginner's mind, starting there, and then to moving to places of vulnerability, that sense of sharing. Can you share yourself with others? And you're more likely to be able to do that if you can see them. So certain exercises like that at the beginning, I find very helpful for people to not only feel grounded, but to feel the sense about that they are uh, to help get themselves out of their own space. And so simply to connect to another person and to say, I see you and I realize you are here. And when I realize that, I realize that you you suffer. And I realize that I am here and I want to be here for you. And so the, I feel like it b- starts to break down some of those barriers and that it's um, we don't have to you know keep telling ourselves to listen, 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 but that it can come naturally out of that sense of the, if I see you and I see that you're suffering, then I want to listen. And so that there is a this uh, Suzuki Shunryu who popularized Zen in the U.S., he has a statement that the compassionate mind comes from beginner's mind. And so that from beginner's mind, compassion naturally flows. So if you can actually be present, you will feel the both the, the desire, you'll be more aware of yourself, but also more connected to the other and that you will want to listen. It will be just something that will come more naturally from you. No. Oh. And and it's something you that you write in the book I hadn't heard before, so I'm I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for how much, by the way, that you included from so much learning from so many different um sources and, and cultures, but talking about this concept of compassion and as a result of beginner's mind in this, um you mentioned the statement uh the Dalai Lama makes about if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. Uh-huh. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and as we see, you know, a beginner's mind being present, um, listening are all doorways to that. Because you make a distinction, you pointed something else out, something else out that I hadn't heard before about about compassion, and you talk about um, you talk about perspective taking, and you talk about I think you called it something like intellectual compassion, as uh, kind of distinguished from I don't know true compassion or some kind of an emotional. Compassion. Will you talk about that for yeah. just a moment? Um, I'm not sure what I was. I, it may have been more using the word empathy. Okay. Of, and the way that psychologists uh, distinguish different kinds of empathy, and then also the distinction between empathy and compassion. Um, so, in the um, so in my clinical training, I was taught that you needed to have empathy and you needed to connect to your clients and you need, um, but we were also told to have distance so that you were supposed to have an appropriate kind of empathy. (laughs) And, uh, and although that seemed um, to me at the time to seem very, felt very cold and and professional. And um, I remember feeling uh, I rejected it and I feel like, no, that's not, what is this professional compassion? And it yeah. doesn't uh, it doesn't fit with why I wanted to be in this profession in this field. Um, but I've come to, and now there's more research that supports this this distinction between how somebody can actually be more helpful if they have this particular distance. So a, a particular kind of empathy, or 
some people call it that compassion and they call it the other one empathy meaning the empathy as the when you get into it you, the same feeling as the other person which therefore then puts you in a position of not being able to be as helpful to that person because yeah, you're down that, there with them right. that's right and, and this was so on page 106 and 107 you talk about this that Sometimes we engage in, or what's possible for us is what psychologists call cognitive empathy. Others might call it perspective taking, which simply consists of knowing how the other person feels and imagining what they might be thinking. Yeah. But the limitation to that is that people could be really talented in that regard <laughs> with having no real concern for other people. So yeah. cognitive empathy alone is often insufficient to create genuine connectedness. Yeah. Right. And then what, yeah. and then what you go on to say, and, and this I starred because I thought it was so amazing about experienced meditators. So science, scientists have studied mm. scientists. I'm convinced scientists study everything. <laughs> you know, they get a grant from somewhere and study every last yes. thing. But yeah. this was fascinating that experienced meditators, when they encounter suffering in another person, the meditators brain show heightened activities in areas that are important to things such as caring, nurturing, establishing mm. positive social affiliation, but in non-meditators who experience the same stimuli who are mm-hmm. subject to the same inputs, mm-hmm. the areas of the brain that are uh, triggered them associate with unpleasant feelings like sadness and pain. Yeah. So yeah. that's amazing that this heartfulness, this mindfulness practice can actually change us in some way, like yeah. physiologically, that our natural innate response without trying, mm-hmm. right, is mm-hmm. one that is more mm-hmm. nurturing, caring, conducive to actual connectedness and not... Mm-hmm. You know, so the difference there between compassion and empathy, I thought, is again, it's like a really fine nuance, but I never heard that before. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting that's... distinction. And I think it relates back to your question about, um, you know, how do we listen better, right? And how yes. do we get ourselves to, to listen better? And that it's, um, like you just said, that the, the practice of mindfulness is something that can help us to be better listeners because we can. Yeah. We can listen in a way that does not – we don't just go into that feeling or, or distance from the feeling, but that we get – we actually feel, feel things in a way that we are able to then respond in a way that is uh, – can be helpful to the other person. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And it makes me think of something I heard Sadhguru say when he says, we do not meditate. We become meditative. Right. Yeah. And in this way of like, how do you become a better listener? To me, this calls to mind that that saying I've heard attributed to Muhammad Ali about champions aren't made in the ring. They're merely recognized there. <laughs> Meaning, yeah. right. It's there's no trick. I'm thinking like, yeah, there's like I think especially like busy executives. They just want to know, you know, uh, what's that saying about if you can fake it? uh the secret is authenticity, right? If you can fake that, you've got it made kind of thing. <laughs> there's yeah. no there's yeah. no trick to listening, but as this research is pointing to, what helps yeah. us be better listeners and other people experience us as better listeners is all the hard work we put in before we ever got in that metaphorical ring, before we ever engaged in that interaction with another person. There's no there's no life hack, I think, probably. Yeah. You know, to being a better listener. But what I mean, what do you how do you see that? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if – I think it relates to the whole uh, ideas about meditation and uh, mindfulness, like the distinction. The, uh, and like I personally uh, 
don't do a lot of meditation. I meditate every day, but I don't do hours and hours of it. And I don't even go on uh, long retreats. Um, but I, I always, I'm seeking to be more mindful and to be more meditative in my daily life. And that, um, and I see the value. So I, I've been studying more at Zen temples in Japan and I'll do some small retreats there and I study with the monks and I, um, so I'm studying that and I'm practicing it. But um, for me personally, I feel that what I want most is to put this meditative, mindful state into action in my daily life. And so yeah. I do feel that um, urge to somewhat uh, to go to those places of contemplation to the degree in which they can uh, guide and nourish my actions in the world. And yeah, no, I I think that's so great, and that calls to mind. A- a quote, uh, I might get this a little bit wrong, but you quoted, I think it's Dag Hammarskjöld, uh-huh. if I'm saying his name right, about the path to sainthood lies through action. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's not just about getting in a mountaintop or in a temple or a cave somewhere. Like any idiot in, can be peaceful alone in a quiet room, right? But the real <laughs> discipline is carrying it through everything, every moment of our lives. Yeah, and we often, I think, there's a trap of the other, other way of thinking, which is that if the um, there's a very uh, funny uh, videotape uh, or YouTube of somebody uh, leading a meditation, and they're saying, "Yeah, it's not important how long you meditate; it's important how long you say you meditate." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like J.P. Sears, oh, yeah, ultra spiritual. Um, oh, you know, um, okay. That's so funny. Uh, That's great. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit with okay. you and and go into the lightning round. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Question one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... A journey on a ship to nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Next question. What's the best news you've heard recently? Um, That uh, you wanted to uh, interview me. Okay. Next question. What's something at which you wish you were better? I wish I was better at just uh, singing without feeling embarrassed. Okay. Next question. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Um, it would have no words. It would, it would have the, the, my book cover. <laughs> it would have the kanji for the book cover, the heartful, heartful one. <laughs> I love it. All right, next question. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Um, the one that you just, you, you just mentioned, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Hammarskjöld. And he has a book called Markings, which I think is full of remarkable sayings about ego and humility and spirit. And, and I did not realize he earned the Nobel, was it the Peace Prize posthumously? Yes, right. Wow! Yeah. Amazing. Okay, I've not, uh, I've not looked at that book yet, but I will. 
check it out. Okay. Um, why, why is that, that book something that um, resonates with you? I mean, I heard what you said is in it, but yeah. why, um, why him, why that book? I think it's the way we started out today when I talked about the ego and humility. And um, mm. because uh, Hammersold is somebody who was at the highest levels of society, the Secretary General of the United Nations, and, um, and yet he's, his writing is about this constant battle between this, his humility and his ego and the sense of being called, feeling called to do that he was on a mission, and in his case, uh, even to sacrifice his life for his work. Um, and yet this also this other humility that if, I'm, if God calls me at any moment to say, this is it, you know, this is all you're going to do, then I have, I'm willing to say, okay, that's, that's it as well, and I've, this is all I was able to do in this lifetime. And, um, so the, I, the writings express that for me, which is a constant battle of uh, how much I, you know, I want to write a book and I write the book and I, I want to feel proud I wrote the book and I want people to read the book. And yet I'm also saying, well, there's nothing new in that book. You know, those eight principles, everybody knows those eight principles already. And yeah, how many people are writing books on mindfulness and, uh, and I'm not going to, I hate self-promotion and all that stuff comes in too. But uh, so for me, it's when you enter into this world of projecting your thoughts and ideas into the world and saying there's a value, then that constant uh, battle comes into about humility. And um, so I find his writings very powerful. Yeah. And, no, that I would definitely check that out. You know, and just hearing you share about that, that balance of the ego and humility um, and also, you know, not maybe feeling comfortable or not liking self-promotion. Um, I'm reminded of something I heard Tony Robbins say, in an, er, in an interview um, about something he realized in his early years where he said, I knew from an early age, if I didn't become a master marketer, my ideas would die on my lips. Yeah. And I thought that mm-hmm. is amazing that he connected his mission and propagating, you know, his ideas that he knew could contribute to others with, you know, his willingness to go out and be an incredible self-promoter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if he's found that balance, but uh, he seems like he's doing all right. <laughs> I, I think it's in the book, but a, the uh, statement from Rabbi Hillel going way back in history that the three words, the three sayings, if I am not for myself, then who will be? If I am only for myself, then what am I? And if not now, when? And yeah. I find that very powerful just to yeah. – you know, that realization that, of course, you have to be for yourself and your own survival and your own flourishing. Uh, and, and that, but if that's all you're about, then what are you as a, as a human yeah. being? And, yeah. and if you can't put things into action, then you will certainly not find fulfillment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next question. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you travel, I imagine, uh, as a teacher. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So you travel a ton. Or you have, what's one travel hack, something you do, or maybe something you take with you when you travel to make your travel more enjoyable or at least less painful? <laughs> I, I've started to carry a Seiza bench, a portable Seiza bench so that it collapses and then you can, I can pull it out. And so I can sit on the floor now uh, as I fractured both hips over the years now and I can't sit cross-legged on the floor for a very long. So I have this 
instead of saying I can't sit, I actually have a little wooden bench that I carry, and it uh, I can sit anywhere, anytime, very comfortably. <laughs> wow! And are you standing now? You look like you might be standing. I'm st- yeah. So I stand more. I try not oh. to sit, and I. So your Apple Watch, if you have one, you close that ring every day, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> yeah, there's a little there's a little circle that prompts you to stand so often in a day. Oh, yeah. I don't need that. I'm so yeah. Standing. Apple, <laughs> Apple looking out for us, but okay. Uh-huh. Um, next, a Seiza bench. Um, something else you do that is kind of either a ritual or you don't leave home without it, or I carry my pajamas <laughs> because in, I, in your carry on. Uh, I, I always oh no I'm not on the, not on the airplane no oh. but I I will um, I, I like to carry pajamas so I mean in Japan of course many places provide a yukata so you don't really need them but I've come very particular about wanting to have a certain com- consistent comfort of the uh, of a particular kind of pajamas that are mm-hmm. <laughs> I carry with me so what what are the pajamas. Um, well, I have a new one actually, which is they're made of organic cotton in Japan, and wow. they're like extremely soft, and they uh, are very comforting. And so I'm giving I give in to that sense of, of physical comfort and how that's important in a daily yeah. sense to help me to get to sleep, even to say, okay, now I've got these clothes on, and this is time for sleep. Yeah, no, that's great. What's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I um I started to put more um discipline into my life to have a more regular life that was um when I was younger I was more would go freer with uh felt freer to go with whatever was happening and feeling like that was the direction I would find the most discovery in life and the most fulfillment and as I've been aging I'm realizing the how that uh, is difficult to maintain that kind of a lifestyle and so i have a much more disciplined regular lifestyle and and see the benefits of of doing that as i get as i age what are some of those disciplines uh go to sleep go to bed at night instead of you know feeling that whatever is happening could be really interesting and um, this could be the discovery that i'm looking for and to tell myself to um the day is over and that this is, you have to accept that this is all you're going to do today. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, maybe you, you were hoping for more or you were, uh, but that this is all that you are able to do today and accept that and go to bed. <laughs> you, you'll live longer that way. I think I think so. <laughs> yeah, yes. research suggests. Yes. Oh, that's great. What's yeah. one thing you wish every American knew? How, lucky you are to be alive and maybe it's that simple just into you know cherish your life and to feel to believe that your life has a purpose and that you can every day do your best to to fulfill that purpose yeah i wish that i wish every american knew that as well (laughs) even if they don't all agree just knowing that okay (laughs) What's something that you learned from your parents or maybe a grandparent? Um, is there any advice or anything you observed, you know, them doing that has really made an impact on you in a way that stayed with you? Like you think about a lot. It's a part of your daily life. Anything like that? Uh, maybe it's the, um, what, you know, goes back to your, your 
question about balance, which I didn't really answer, but it was this, I think it was a sense of seeing um, the stark contrasts, which in my case are, are also very visual between the Irish side of the family and then the Japanese side of the family and the the very different ways in which they lived uh, mm-hmm. and that, that simply that they were and that that was, uh, I could see the the beauty in each uh, and the value in each, I think just by living through living and to, to see that, well, people can be, live differently, but that there are just different expressions of how we all might live. And that might be because people are different and that, yeah. um, but to be open to that re, uh, realization that we could all be living our a good life in a different, good lives in a different way. Wow. What a, what a gift. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So right here, before we transition into the portion where we talk about writing, okay. I want to say this to make sure that we get, that we get to it. Um, two things. First of all, um, I want to let you know that as a small token of my gratitude, I have made a micro loan uh, on your behalf through Kiva.org, which started right there at Stanford, where you are, um, to an entrepreneur in uh, Ecuador. So it's a woman named Sandra Zimina that she will use this money to buy a computer to further her nursing studies and for her kids' schoolwork. So um, anyway, her dream is for her family to have the opportunity to improve their quality of life. So in some way together, I I, I like to think we're doing that. Oh, great. Yeah. Good. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah, Yeah. Thank you. And then the other thing I want to do, I want to put here to make sure that we do it and not try to squeeze it in at the end is if people want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what should they do? I have a website, and I put a blog on there maybe once a week, and they could um, subscribe to the web to the blog. Um, I will have very shortly a, a, a site about something that I just started called the Stanford Heartfulness Lab, and so that will be will go up pretty quickly and uh, people can see the work there, but a lot of it's already on the the website, but the, the lab wor- uh, site will have more Stanford specific information about what I'm doing through the university. Um, but those are the, the, the best ways. And then from there they can see that I have an email address too on, on the website that they could contact me. That's great. And will you tell us, um, and I'll put it in the show notes so people can find it easily who want to do that, but um, will you also be willing to to say what the URL is for the website for anybody who's who's just listening now? Oh, yeah. It's simply my the whole name, murphyshigematsu.com. Okay. No no hyphens? It's just, no hyphens. Yep. So, and then Shigematsu. So, Murphy is just what it sounds like, M-U-R-P-H-Y. Shigematsu is S-H-I-G-E-M-A-T-S-U. Yes, dot com. Dot com. Yeah. That's right. And, of course, people can find your books on Amazon.com or hopefully at their local bookstore. Hopefully, yeah. That's great. Okay. Well, then, let's – I have just a few questions for you as it relates to um, writing. Mm, And so what do you want to say about writing? Maybe I should quit asking mm. you just let you say whatever you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a few uh, questions, but yeah? if, if I just opened up a space to talk about writing, um, would you step into it? Yeah. What would you say? I like to write. <laughs> um, and then I immediately felt that's actually not true. Um, 
I feel called to write, and I feel that it was, um, I was told fairly early in life that I write well, and that I therefore should want to write, or that I should should write, and but I found it from that point it was natural to write, and to feel the satisfaction in writing, and um, and so I've but I feel it more than that sense of I like to write, that it feels that I'm, uh, that somehow that's part of who I am and what I need to do. And that um, when I do it, I do feel the a healing quality in that, in the writing. And I also feel the satisfaction that I think it, perhaps any artist or craftsperson feels or uh, people, that anybody who can produce something with their hands, um, I feel the, the, the satisfaction that I have um, left something behind in the world too that um, is very concrete and that it's... Um, uh, so I continue, I've written now for a few years and I continue to write and see it as uh, just a, an integral part of my life that uh, I do on a daily basis. Some some kind of writing every day. Some kind, yeah, and that, wow. but that varies quite a bit depending on the intensity of the um, the process, the where I am in the process, uh, what I'm writing for, and. Um, in terms of a book, of course, there are waves in, ter- of, in hum- terms of how much writing is being done, and sometimes a lot and sometimes not much. I want to check this out in, in your experience to see if, um, if I'm unique in this or if this is your experience as well. But I have a love-hate relationship with writing. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and you do talk in your book also about flow, mm. uh, which I appreciate. Yeah. And, and I love when I get past my inertia or inertia and I'm into it and I managed to get into a flow state, but it's, I feel like I'm fighting myself to get to that point. But what I want to check out with you is, is it your experience as well that the act of writing never gets easier? I mean, your quality of your writing might get better, but the act itself is often maybe almost always like painful in some way, but then it's also gratifying, especially when you're done. (laughs) Is that, yeah, is your experience something similar to that or something different? Yeah, I think that's why I reacted immediate, immediately when I said I like writing because <laughs> I don't like writing. <laughs> and yeah. Because it's, it does feel feels like that um, to me also. And I, So when I, when I hear people talk about writing a book, I have a very complex reactions often, which is um, – one is that I don't believe everybody has the ability to write a book, and that can come across as arrogant that some people – but I think it's the reality. Some people write well, and some people don't write well enough to write a book. Um, but more I react to the feeling that um, I feel like many people think it's something you like to do and you can do easily. Yeah. Uh, whereas to me, it's something that is uh, requires incredible, uh, incredible effort to do it, and that a lot of that those periods are are difficult periods. And um, and the way that I think I write and many people write is that you 
it forces you to go very deep within yourself and to um you know to really wrestle with some demons and to come out with something that is um often uh, difficult to produce because it comes from a place of uh, it could come from a place of trauma, come, could come from a place of, of deep sorrow. It could, um, but I often find that the best writing comes from a very deep place that is uh, hard to go to and hard to stay with. And, yeah, yeah, it, it does remind me a little of the tiny bit I've learned about shamanism. This concept that a shaman is merely someone who goes out and brings something back. Right. And so reaching deep into parts of ourselves, our experience, or maybe even the collective unconscious or maybe a super conscious if it exists, you know, going yeah. beyond that and then bringing whatever gifts or messages might be back. What I mean, I know that yeah. can sound really metaphysical and like and like crap <laughs> too, perhaps. But what what do you think? It's a bunch of crap, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I I. When you were saying that, it really made me aware of the 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 that the state I go into almost is a kind of altered state of consciousness. Um, that it really does require, like when I when I look at what I've written, um, if I look at it right now, I'm I'm amazed. Often I say, I wrote that. <laughs> what kind of a and I think what kind of a state of mind was I in when I wrote that? Because right now I don't feel like I'm in that place at all, in a normal daily life, I, I don't feel like I can access that place. But a lot of my writing occurs very early in the morning. Mm. Uh, and I often get out of bed without a, a my head might still be uh, very foggy or my eyes may have difficulty opening, but my mind is, is so clear and so sharp. And it's in, it's in places I don't go for the rest of my, the day. It's yeah. in these places that are somewhere related to subconscious or the unconscious or these, and it's got some incredible uh, clarity and depth that I, I see later when I look at the writing, but I don't, uh, and I, uh, I realize I don't go there all the time in, in every yeah. day. Yeah. It makes me think about the, the, this kind of concept. I remember reading about Jung having the sense that there was an old man. Right, that inside himself was some kind of an old man from an early age. There was yeah. the child that he was, and then this elderly figure inside himself. And uh, and and I think about this idea of that there definitely seems to be some kind of intelligence that is part of who we are. Right, that's guiding our respiration, our digestion, mm -hmm. you know, all of our nervous system that we don't consciously control uh, for the most part. And I wonder, you know, when and how. You know, when we can cross into accessing or tapping into that or partnering with, yeah. playing with that, allowing it through. When you say you write early in yeah. the morning, how how early are you talking about? It's like 5 a.m. sunrise? I, res uh, um, I can often <laughs> – no, I can go from 3.30. But I, I, often, I often resist because I, I know that I haven't gotten enough sleep. Yeah. But my mind is ready. But I often force myself to stay there and I often can have productive – uh, writing going on in my mind uh, for maybe another 30 minutes or an hour. Um, the best periods I, I will get up about 4.30 maybe. Mm. And that gives me a few hours before uh, when I had kids going off to school or dogs to take care of, I would still have a few hours 
that I could work. And um, so for me, it has to be very early. When you write, do you prefer silence or some kind of soundtrack? Silence. Silence is its own soundtrack, right? <laughs> but you prefer <laughs> silence. Yes, I can't write with, um, with music. Mm. I, and do you like to write um, in, a, in a private space, like in your home or in an office? Or do you like to be around people, like in a cafe or something like that? I always write in a private space. Mm. So I, 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 quiet and private. And when you write, um, what kind of rituals, if any, do you have? You have you know, light a candle, brew some tea, you know, wear a certain robe, anything like that. No, I, uh, well, I always have tea. Yeah, I always have tea, and then I often will. Um, I'll often read something first, and it may be very short, like the the what I showed you with the Dalai Lama, the precious human life. Or um, I get things into my mailbox, and this is a. It's very tricky, though, if you go into your computer. <laughs> Yeah, but I get things like the Tricycle Review, I think it is, or the Daily Good. I get these really inspirational writing can come in. And if I feel stuck, I may go to something like that. But I often uh, will do get something very short, like um, to read. And I'll read a little bit, and then I'll go to the writing. So I, sometimes that works. I'm le- that's if I don't have a clear thought already. But if I jump up and I'm ready, and I've got the clear thought, then I can just go right to it with the... But I always get the T first. Who has inspired you or taught or guided you in your journey uh, to be a writer? And what have you learned from them? Mm. There's there's a couple of people that I think especially... There's the um, the Jesuit Henri Nguyen, N-O-U-W-E-N, that um, I've known since uh, the days of, of studying to be a counselor and that I found that um, the writing, another writer, Parker Palmer. Uh, so two people who are have written with us, with, I feel, uh, dealing with that sense of vulnerability, humility, and also ego, that to, the ego to be able to believe you have book after book <laughs> to, to write and to... Mm-hmm publish and to tell the people about the book and um but i found those books to be very helpful for me to uh encourage me to write with vulnerability uh and to not fall into the trap of of needing to be the the expert and the person that um or to write in a best selling way you know to write in a way that is clearly uh saying that you, uh, emphasizing to me that you have something more important than other people to say. And I feel like they are, they're two writers who have written with um, a good sense of keeping both uh, perspectives on their writing. Yeah. And Henri, Henri, Nguyen, Nguyen, yeah. right? Henri Nguyen. Um, he, you actually quoted four lines from... Uh, him in your book that I wrote a while by. I didn't write by by a lot. I underlined a lot, but I didn't write. Oh. But when you say, so his words, so healing. Now, I had to read this like five times. And then I texted it to a friend mm. and we talked about it, truly. Um, oh. but he said, he said uh, so healing is the receiving and full understanding of the story 
so that strangers can recognize in the eyes of their host their own unique way that leads them to the present and suggests the direction into it, in which to go. Wow. And this thing yeah. about receiving, first of all, telling stories, receiving a story, the wisdom that the, that the teller of the story already has in finding their own way to go, mm. right? But you being the person that makes that possible for them and all this. So it's a bit of a sidetrack, except when you mentioned his name, I wanted to acknowledge that uh. part of what you shared really touched me. Yeah. And the other thing it brings up is story, right? Because I've talked yeah. a couple times that you use story, personal story, and, and pointing to other stories very powerfully. And um, as we know, there's something really primal uh, that we connect with about stories, a linear and the, the message and you know this kind of thing. What's your advice when it comes to storytelling for writers? Mm. Using stories to help make their points or whether it's to even maybe entertain – or teach something, what, what have you found is, is useful? Because what, what I've seen is, mm-hmm. I know storytelling is powerful, but stories seem like the water we swim in. They're like invisible almost, right? Mm. It, from our own experience. But people, when we tell them, often connect with them. They resonate very powerfully. But how can we, as writers who are aspiring to connect with and serve others in some way, really mm. find our own stories and use them effectively? Yeah. That's, um, I feel inadequate to answer that question because it's, it's one I'm, um, I struggle with a lot. I'm not sure that, that, that when I've, because when I started this whole process, I was deeply immersed in the academic world and which uh, this was not a, a, a mainstream thing to do. You were supposed to write in a way that was academic and scholarly. And so to, to, Break away from that really took a lot of uh, belief in that the way I was writing was something of value. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, went against the current. I had to, like, uh, so I was, this is like a, the first book I wrote, which was um, storytelling of clinical encounters. And it was uh, something that was, uh, I couldn't get much support for in terms of my own. Uh, people that I worked with in the clinical field, but it was, uh, I had to really believe that it was, um, it was a good way for learning for me, but also for teaching and that Mm. people. I'm sorry. And for those of you who are listening, um, Stephen just showed me a copy of his book, Multicultural Encounters. So talking about using, using this as a way of introducing storytelling, but still trying to walk that academic or clinical line. It sounds yeah. like you didn't receive a lot of support for back then. No, it's and it's never been a mainstream, you know, part of the field. I I have taught uh, a course at Stanford called narrative psychology, and so there is a recognition that there is something in the field that is uh, at least can be useful at the university level, and it's something academic about it. And uh, but it's still hardly a mainstream thing. But it's something that I have continued to to use, and I think the. The, there's a fine line apparently between writing stories also in terms of when they become uh, personal and yeah. that when that story becomes a uh, indulgent or a self-indulgent story uh, in the way that you tell it and that there's a power, there's a lack of power in that, but that there's a power in if you can tell a story in a way that it is clearly uh, what is most deeply personal is also universal. 
so that I think this at the very beginning of today's interview, you used an expression like that about the universal that uh, these are universal themes in my book, and yet they're told with particular stories that are unique to me. These are my yeah. stories. And so that's, um, to me, the beauty of a story is if you can use your, your deepest personal experiences and insights in a way that uh, connects and clearly shows that this is, this is nothing just strangely about me as this uh, peculiar person. Um, it is my particular experience, but it's, I tell it in a way that I only want it to I only want to tell it because I know that it relates to you. I believe that yeah. this is only a this is a human experience, despite all the particulars that are there, and I believe that you too have this experience in a, in your own way, and I want to tell the story in a way that it just goes right into you and you go, "Oh yes, that's my story you know his his mother's Japanese and his father's Irish, but that's his uh particulars but the human part that most the deepest human value that he's trying to represent in the story is that's my story too because i'm yeah. as a as a practical matter of organizing your content and organizing your book because i think this is what a lot of people are i won't say stuck but maybe don't know where to begin mm. and, and we're talking about stories so you have these concepts that you want to you know uh, flesh out you want to share about one way you want to share is stories. Other ways is research. Other ways is drawing on other thinkers, right? And then your own kind of exposition and what you want to say about it. But will you kind of break down or walk us through me and anyone listening through your process? I mean, how do you, from the time you know you want to write a book about any given subject, in this case, of course, it was heartfulness. How do you start to go through that process of figuring out what is it that I'm going to say? How do I outline it and organize it? Then how do I start to kind of, for lack of a better term, hang, you know, these components on that skeleton and then start to flesh it out and make it real? How do you, how do you make a book? How do you, basically, how do you take a book from concept to completion? How do you approach that? Yeah. Tough question. So I, I just started a book called The Transformative Twenties. Um, and I got the... What I find is I get a big idea, and then I imagine it as a book, and then I get paralyzed because I think, oh, my God, how can I write a whole book on that? And Wait, you do that too? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the voices come in, you know, the critics. So, you know, so everybody knows that already. And, you know, yeah. there's a hundred books about that. And, you know, what do you? what makes you think you've got anything unique to say about that? And then... All those come in, and then I say, uh, well, let's just start. Let's just start somewhere. And so the, um, the whole idea is what I want to understand how people navigate these difficult years after you know, post-adolescence or continued adolescence or late adulthood, these, these traumatic, potentially, years in which you could either be dead or you could be flourishing uh, and you know, some I, I know a young person two weeks ago committed suicide, and I know other people who are feeling that they are transformed uh, by the simple ways of, of uh, you know, 
experiencing the connectedness that they have with others and that that they feel they find themselves and that there's all kinds of things going on that in those tw- those years, um, not necessarily confined to the 20s, but you know that early life period that I want to know more about and I believe that I have, I can, if I can learn about that more, then I can uh, put something out there that would be a guide to some people to try to get through those years. And um, so I start and I say, well, what do I know about it? And I say a little bit because I have been teaching people in those in that period of time. But a lot of those people are only, uh, I, I lose uh, connection with them after they graduate from college. They're still only 21, 22 years old. Um, so I said, well, well, well uh, go out and connect with those people and find them. And so I I do have a number of, of former students who are now all the way up to 30 years old, and I still have contact with them. And uh, so I made it into a, a formalized thing. And I said, can, can we just sit down and I want to hear about how your life is going? Um, and so I started to to talk to people and each, each interview I say, wow, that's, you know, that's a really important thing that other, other young people would probably love to hear about how they felt, you know, such despair and such that their life was meaningless and that they, uh, were doing just self-destructive behaviors. And then they, that, that was me totally. That was you. Right? It, it, was, well, it was, uh, well, yeah, I could have used that book like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh and one thing I said to the, the students the other day in the classes was, you know, you know I I I realize I do this because I've seen so many people wake up later in life and it could be even before they die, but uh and often it takes something really really hard to wake us up to our the value of our our life and it could be an life-threatening illness, or it could be a, a despair that drives us to feel suicidal. It could be, you know, something very hard, though. And I said, and I know that's how we learn the best, but I'm hoping that if we can somehow, you know, in a less dramatic way, learn these uh, values in life um, in not such a harsh manner that in earlier that we may have a better chance for for really living a, a good life, and that's why I'm here in this room, and that's why I bring people who know more than I do about how you get to that place and how you get out of that place, and um, because they've experienced things I haven't experienced, and I forget where I was going with that. But uh, we were talking about how you approach a book from tip to tail, and saying you've got you've got this concept and you want to write it and you have this self doubt yeah. and then you move forward and you start interviewing people and so you're getting some clarity perhaps and some material yeah um, how do you, so maybe part of this is how do you start to organize that how do you particularly keep yourself organized do you like to print things and keep them in folders do you use word or google drive or something else evernote you know trello scrivener you know something like that what are the kind of tactical things that you do as you move into you know, the creative process. Yeah. Um, I find it's helpful to do things in, um, in steps in the sense that, um, I think many book ideas should never be book become books. And certainly you see a lot of criticism about writers that, well, they said everything in the introduction (laughs) or the first chapter, and then they just stretched it out into a whole book. And, 
Um, and I think a lot of books should never become books. That it's um, so it's good to to start with with articles. It's good to start with essays. It's good to start with blogs. It's good to start with, start somewhere, and then you may discover that oh, this connects to this other thing I wrote, and that um, it is becoming more than what I. Uh, it's it is becoming a book, and in other cases, you may find you know I think I've run out of this idea. I thought it was this kind of a book, this theme, but it just seemed like it's not really going to be a whole whole book. But and then you might redirect yourself. You say, but but this seems to be developing this theme, and now I can go in that direction. And so I like to write uh, short. So I like I find the blogs very helpful. I find essays very helpful. Uh, some of them are just like. 300 words. I write a lot of 450, 500 word articles and off, usually less than a thousand words I find are very, very good writing exercises to bring clarity to my, to my thoughts and yeah. that they can then become building blocks towards something. Yeah. Plus one benefit of that is you also get to see how people respond to it, right? What yeah. they comment, yeah. you know, what the people who you know We'll say when they read it, and uh, mm-hmm. what a great what a great opportunity that's that just makes so much sense. What do you think is important for writers to know or do when it comes to technology? Technology. Um, I don't use a lot of technology, so I'm not really sure. And in fact, I find it's um, extremely helpful for me to print out. Uh, as I write, so if I even if I'm writing a, a 450 word essay, I will I might print it out eight times, or mm-hmm. I repeatedly print it out because I just see it differently and better wow. on paper and see the, the see it in its entirety rather than the little bit you can see on the screen. And I always find that I uh, can write it better if I can see it. So I still use a lot of old fashioned techniques in that sense. Um, I will sometimes write on paper still too, because I find that uh, I I did say I write almost always in my room, but it's not com- completely true. I will sometimes write outside, uh, but generally, even in my room, if I'm finding uh, somehow, I just feel moved to write it with a pen, pen and paper, and uh, it sometimes somehow brings up something that feels. Maybe it's a, a kind of romantic image of a, a writing rather than, you know, writing on a on a lap on a keyboard and yeah. But, but something comes up. Um, technology. I'm not sure what else I. I do carry my laptop with me all the time, and it's, so it's always I'm always able to write whenever I have a uh, some time. Um, I don't write on my iPhone. I don't write on my. Uh, I don't have a iPad or anything. Um, I'm yeah. I'm not very savvy with tech. I think a lot of people are using far better. Well, what I love about that is you. You know, despite not being savvy with tech, you get it done, right? That's and that's the thing. You you cross the finish line. <laughs> you get it out into the world, and so the means is sometimes interesting and useful. But I think ultimately, all of us. Like with pretty much everything in life, find our own way. <laughs> so <laughs> let me ask you this about creating sentences. Um, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? I write very simply. And I think that's um, 
something I've I've been practicing haiku lately, and I and the students I practice it with the students too, and I think it's it's very helpful for uh, people who think that writing is has to be um, complex, and the more complex the better, and the haiku really helps to develop this sense of um, clarity within with a few words and. Uh, I'm always going for simplicity in the writing, and I feel um, I don't enjoy writing something that somebody else can't understand and that they're using words that a person, to say with a high school education, would not understand. I don't like doing that, and I think it's also... I want my writing to be in sentences that are um, readable to a lot of people, and they could... They could, they could understand them. And so when I feel like I'm writing well, then I feel like the sentences are very clear and that um, people are not going to read them and think, wow, that's, I don't know what he's, sounds good, but I don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> Just don't, yeah. I don't know what this guy's pointing to. No, that, that makes sense. I remember um, hearing that advice as well as that writing at a certain erudite level writing is such a way that so academic or highfalutin is as ineffective in communicating as you know writing at such a rudimentary level that it it loses the richness or depth yeah so that makes sense well okay i know we're just we're just about to at time here so i just want to ask one one final question um Mm -hmm. what advice or encouragement would you leave anyone listening to this with when it comes to them getting their book or whatever writing project they're involved in or any creative project, perhaps. I know I've just broadened that, but what advice or encouragement would you give to somebody who's either thinking about beginning, has wanted to do it, but maybe hasn't known where to start Mm. or is in the middle of it and, and, and hasn't managed to this point to bring it over the finish line? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll share another book of mine with you then, which is the, uh, the title is One Half is Whole, and it has a, a, a the image of a moon, of a half moon on the cover. And it's um, I thought of it just now because I think we all have so much of ourselves that is in the shadows still. Yeah. Um, and that what's in there is something that we, with courage, we can discover, um, but that it's not going to be easy to go there because a lot of that it's in the shadows for reasons that we have put it there. Um, And some of that could be though the greatest sources of what we find is powerful in our writing. Um, So I think my, I believe you can go there. If you can go there to those places that are still unknown to you. And some of that is going to be your own uh, abilities too. You might find that people have told you, Oh no, don't, writing is not important or you know, do this because this is more important or or have told you you're not a good writer, but maybe you they were wrong. Uh, but there's a lot in that, uh, the discovery of, of what you don't know yet about yourself and that that could be, uh, if you can take the journey to go there and uh, then you can find that there's a lot that you can write about that no one else can write about um, but that it's a tough journey. It's the hero's journey. And it's, yeah. a, it's not something you would undertake lightly and say, I'm going to write a book. Um, but knowing that, that 
process is going to be uh, difficult, but also it could be liberating, it could be joyful, it could be uh, help you to realize your your potential, you know, as a human being. And um, so to see it as something that is a really uh, meaningful thing that you could be doing in your life. Yeah, no, that's great. I know I said that was the last question. I'm just, my own curiosity, I just want to ask, do you enjoy, do you prefer writing in English or Japanese? Uh, I prefer English because my expression, I'm not a completely uh, equal uh, bilingual. So I write better in English. And um, I find that the the Japanese is uh, more of a, uh, I see. I feel some revelations in that uh, because of the um, right. It pushes me to write in a different way. Uh, I think a simpler, even simpler than the English, because I, I have less um, options, and I find that the clarity at sometimes, or the simplicity at sometimes, can be feel like it doesn't have enough there. But at other times, it can feel like it just cuts right to the the message or to the the feeling and it, it sometimes it just helps me to say it more simply and that yeah. there's a beauty in that as well yeah, yeah for sure well Stephen, thank you again thank you so much for making time to share with me and with everybody listening of your experience and of your knowledge and i would even say of your wisdom uh, i've really enjoyed this conversation i've taken away so much and i think Anyone who's made it, especially to this part in the conversation, has as yeah. well. So, so thank you for that. Thank you so much, Brian. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 